Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all 7 continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Hello friends and welcome to another edition of the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Uh, As usual, I'm over the moon today because I got yet another fascinating guest, a genuinely nice man. Um, This gentleman supported me when I did my nine nine miles run from John O'Groats to Land's End. Uh, It really meant a lot to me and I'm proud to say hello to Colin McLaughlin. Hello, Colin. Hi, pleasure to virtually meet you again over Zoom. Yes, and I should say um, I'm not really big on introductions. I like to just chat, but for people who don't know, Colin served how many years in the SAS, Colin? Uh, So I served 18 years in the military, the first half with Royal Scots, that's now uh, one Scots in the second half with the SAS. And maybe people at home will be more f- familiar having seen you on the television. Uh, yeah, maybe Channel 4 uh, series, one of the SES studios wins, or Channel 5 Secrets of the SES, or various documentaries and podcasts and stuff. How is it working for the TV companies? I think for anybody that's worked in TV, they'll say it can be, you can see the sort of best and worst of it. You know, some some things are manipulated for television, some things television have an agenda or an audience that they're trying to get across. Um, and other times it, it's the best, you know, and, and certainly things like the Channel 4, that, that's exactly some, some of the best and, and worst times in TV for me were, were doing things like that and the TV shows. Um, yeah, no, I agree with you on the TV thing. I, it, it's, I've done interviews for the BBC for like two hour long interviews. And I've said one thing. And when the interview comes out, it's like a 25 second soundbite. And they've taken the worst thing that I said in, in a two hour interview to, to put to their, to their audience. I, I think you've got to be really careful when you're dealing with these they, they're pretty cutthroat, I think, some of them. Yeah, I've been stung quite badly from both television and media, newspapers and stuff, and I think they you forget that they have an agenda. So whether it's to try and shock people, have as much shouting and swearing on television, or to make good television from what they think is good television, or whether the newspapers are trying to sell a headline and that, you know, what you say might be not exciting enough for, for a headline, so they'll manipulate it that way. I've, I've, seen, I've seen all ends of that, and it, it makes you quite um, really restrictive in what you want to say to the media because you know you, you, when you've been stung in the past with any of these things, you're really guarded against it in the future, which is a shame because you want to be frank and open and honest. And generally for me, I am, maybe more so, maybe too much so than what I should be given the background. But I always give people the benefit of the doubt. But, yeah, I've been stung quite badly with, with TV and papers and stuff. Yeah, I mean, are we allowed to talk about that? Because I was really looking forward to reading your book. 
Yeah, and we can talk about that because um, one of the things about coronavirus is that it's given me the opportunity to do a lot of writing. And, and one of the things that happened with the Pilgrim was I would send the manuscript away and it would come back and then what would just say no? And I'd say, well, why? And they'd say, well, because it's just it's broken the terms of your disclosure. And I'd say, but if you don't tell me what it is that, you know, that needs taken out, I can't edit it. So just recently, only in the last sort of year or so, they've sent me back a redaction document, which actually has the stuff broken down in it that needs to come out of it. And I wish they'd sent me that from the start. This is that, would is that the M- MOD, mate? Yeah, the MOD disclosure cell. And so over this sort of coronavirus, I've managed to get through the redaction document, edit all the bits they've say and sent it away. And so they currently have that. So I'm hoping that when they send me this latest draft, and we're now on draft 17, I think, when this latest draft comes back, it'll have the green light. And if it does, I'm hoping the book will be out in, in time for Christmas this year. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one, that. Um, um, when I wrote... Mo- when I've written my memoirs, I'm always really careful. I just anonymize pretty much everybody. I just ask myself the question, do they know they're appearing in a book? Well, no. Um, would they want to? Well, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, so I'll just give them a different name. I'll even change a place name just to make it completely anonymous. But, of course, the only, the, the only military um, kind of, thing that was a possible issue was that I was on the Royal Marines detachment on HMS Invincible and our our job was to um protect certain weapon systems and uh, that's kind of like the only thing I think in my book that I've, I've the only kind of military secrets act issue that I've I've given away so it wasn't um it wasn't so much but I get a lot of first time authors that I'm supporting really worry about a lot of these things and I always just say you know don't don't overthink it probably what your worst scenario is never going to happen the people you're thinking about are never going to read your book anonymize them anyway but of course with with your story Colin that takes on a whole different angle doesn't it is is that is that something that's become more pertinent or prominent since Andy McNabb wrote his book? Yeah, I think in the past, uh, if you were Special Forces in the days of sort of Andy McNabb and stuff, you would be able to write a book and that would be it. And because because of Andy McNabb and Chris Ryan writing books, they've brought in disclosure now. So you, you sign a document, um, which is like the Official Secrets Act, you sign that. Um, before you even go on selection, it's day one of selection. And then I think they get you to sign it again before you leave. And you're you're bound by that. And so anybody that hasn't signed that or is out with that signing is sort of exempt from that unless they have a, you know, some kind of agenda they want to go after you for stuff. So we're sort of bound by that, which is fine, but it's supposed to be this sort of two-way transparent process whereby I write a manuscript, I send it to disclosure, they sort of red pen some of it and send it back and I make sure I didn't take that out but up till last year that hasn't happened all they've said is no and that's problematic because 
if you just tell somebody no, they don't know what it is they need to take out of it. And, yeah, of course. And when we first started, they said, well, you've got to take everything out from the day you started selection onwards. I said, well, that's unrealistic because, A, that can't all be secret. And I've spoke about a lot of this stuff before. And there, there's also there, there's, there's stuff in there that, you know, is in public domain and stuff. So then they said, well, you can write everything from after selection, because obviously selection process became quite open after the coroner's court with sadly losing people on selection. So then they said, OK, you can write everything from after selection. And then it's it's slowly this line in the sand that doesn't really exist is slowly moved forward and 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 now we're at the point where i have this redaction table that actually says specifically line for line what needs taken out or edited so that's where we're at now and that's what i've sent back and hopefully if i get that back in time for for the summer uh, it'll be out in time for christmas but one of the other good things about this uh, virus if there are positives to take out it is it gives people a chance to do stuff they wouldn't otherwise whether it's stuff in the house writing down their memoirs, taking care of stuff, bits and pieces, seeing family and friends and doing stuff that you'd sit down and do that you never, the hustle and bustle of life doesn't give you the chance to do that. And so I've been writing another book on resilience. And I think resilience is probably, half of all the talks I did last year were probably on resilience, uh, themes around resilience. And I think there's probably no uh, no period in our in our generation where we'll probably need resilience more to get through this period, even if it's just self-motivation for stuff during those weeks of isolation in the house. So I've written this, uh, I've done about 15,000 words now of a sort of resilience book, which hopefully will be the follow-on to The Pilgrim, which is the autobiography. And in there, that'll, that'll help all people, whether it's people that are coping with mental health, parents, teachers, business leaders, and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that's what I've been working away on, as well as painting the fence and doing the hall and cleaning the garage and all the other good stuff everybody's doing. It's a funny time because, you know, I work from home, so I haven't got enough hours in a day anyway, so nothing's really changed. Um, I wish that, you know, lockdown meant that I got my, you know, my working day, and then I had to lock down for another 24 hours, and it was in the same day, because then yeah. I could, I mean, I, I just, I, I work way, way too much. Um, but you know, it's that thing, isn't it? If you want to, if you don't want to go and work for someone else, th these are the things you've got to do. There's not, not really a, 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 an easy way around it. But, um, yeah. So the, 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 tell me if you don't want to talk about this, but the ambush thing, Colin, was that, was that a reason the book got challenged as well? Or, um, so the capture would have been, um, that would have been part of it. And that was certainly, there the are parts of the capture that are part of the redaction document. So there are bits of that I probably won't be able to talk about or I'll have to edit or, or whatever for when the book comes out. But there's lots of things that you wouldn't think about. So even place names. So instead of naming countries, you know, it'll say, well, you just have to say somewhere in the Middle East. And so sometimes it goes further than what you think. Like you would just automatically assume that, you know, if we're talking about the Middle East people, you know, assume where it is that you're, you're talking about. But even stuff like that, I've had to edit. And that's stuff that's problematic because 
most people have common sense when it comes to TTPs and tactics procedures, whatever it is you're going to talk about. And there's nothing in the book that's secret in terms of a, a piece of equipment or a tactic. But there's things in there that you think, really, like I need to take that out. And, and it makes you think, you know, and, and that's why it's been such a long process. And I think because mine's quite operations heavy, like there's a lot of that stuff in it, whereas some of the other books that have been out in the past, I've talked more about people's lives and very little about the special forces life. But I think people bought the book thinking that, you know, it was a book about special forces, you know, uh, even by the titles or having winged daggers on the book or whatever. They've thought it's been about operations. Mine is, does have quite a lot of operations in it. So it's taken longer than um, most to get it over the line. But I'm hopeful that if it does get over the line this year, it'll all have been all have been worth it. But that's that's been resilience itself. That's that's been about ten years in the coming. So when it comes, it'll be um, uh, hopefully it'll all be worthwhile. Let's talk about resilience in a bit. I'm just um, conscious for my sort of younger watchership, if that's a word. Um, they'll be fascinated with the military stuff. But before the military, what what kind of upbringing? Did you have Colin? Did you have challenges growing up? Or, or yeah, I probably had quite an atypical upbringing to a lot of infantry um, that, that would end up joining the infantry. My, I had quite a troubled um, upbringing. So my original dad um, had been an alcoholic. Had left at a, a quite a um, quite a young age. Um, my mum had been quite violent my stepdad was 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 really violent and so I had the NSPCC and stuff RSPCC in and out the the house children's panels supervision orders all that sort of stuff and I was quite close to going to home and um, thankfully for me my, my sisters came along my little brother and so the, the, it, it was a sort of string that kept me attached to the family unit and so I didn't eventually go to a home. I, I stayed in, but I had to get special permission to join the, the army at quite a young age. I was only 15, and I think you had to be 16 to join the army. Um, but my mum wrote a letter to say I could join the the army, and off I went. I, I joined the infantry, and I didn't. I wasn't really. I didn't want to join the army when I was young. I wasn't a, a boy that army was my natural sort of calling. I um, it, it was the sort of my mum dragged me down to the careers office and I did that tick test they had at the time. And I think I think I equaled the highest they had in Bathgate, which probably isn't saying much. And they said, um, you can join anything you want. <clears throat> and I remember looking around the, the office and there was a picture of a guy in short sleeve, blue, a blue shirt. He was all tanned and he was abseiling down a, a radar dish in Hong Kong. And I said, I, I want to be that guy. And I still remember it now. It was a telecommunications systems analyst operator. It was a big title, and I remember the title. And I went home, like, thinking about this title that I was going to be. And they said, no, it's a, it's a year's waiting list, and then it's two years training. And um, it was an REF job. And uh, my mum said, no, he's got to be out of the house for the time he's 16. So I joined the infantry two weeks later, and I was only about 15 and a half. Um, which would have been probably one of the youngest soldiers to have joined the British Army. When, when I first joined, I was I was too young even to go to Germany. And I was too young to go out to the Gulf when it for the first Gulf when it first started. 
and I was rear party for uh, the regiment at that time. And um, of course, in those days, you could go to Ireland at seventeen, but you weren't you weren't um, you weren't old enough to drink, which always makes me think that it's always it's put me in this sort of bubble that you know we're we're only we're we're, we're sort of used to the environment that we're around, we're products of our environment, and at that age, I was sort of um, seventeen, and I could go away to Ireland, but uh, you know I wasn't old enough to drink alcohol. But it was strange times. But yeah, I made the best of it, you know. And um, if it's any well, consolation, Colin, I I didn't get in the RAF either. <laughs> I I went down to the recruiting office and I did the you know the tests and stuff, and they called me in for my interview and went, "Sorry, we we don't think you'll stick the training." And uh, at that point, little did I know I was going to go down the Marines recruiting office about a year later and join join the Marines, and they obviously didn't have a problem with me, so. Just shows you the sort of scallywag they'll let in the Royal Marines. Well, I, you know, it's RAF's loss. And I, I just think that sometimes we, are, we have a weird, you, you'll always have times in your life where you'll hit these crossroads and you, it's so easy to go one way or another and it can have quite a, an impact on your life. And I've certainly had a, I've certainly had a, had a few of them. And it, it's not necessarily around your own fault or choosing, you know, and I've had a few times where I've had either doors slammed in my face or rejections or failures and you end up taking a different turn and that ends up where you where you end up becoming in life but yeah I had one recently with the, with the, the territorial army I thought I'll join the reserves I thought because I'll try and keep my hand in and get experience this was a few years ago and I went up to Dundee and uh, two three I think it was that were up there and uh, knew some of the guys up there and they said yeah you just need to do this weekend the Glen course and then, you know, we'll go up the fan and then that, you know, that'll, that'll be you. Like. And I went to Glen Course and they didn't really know what to do with me, but I got through the weekend. But at the end of the weekend, you had a medical. And in the medical, the, the GP says, um, just, just duck waddle to the door. And when I did it, he said, you've got flat feet. I said, I can't have flat feet. I've just, I've just come out the regs. I've just come out 2-2. Two, two. He went, no, you, you've got flat feet. And uh, you, you can't get in the reserve. So not only did I fail getting in the RAF, I failed getting in the TA as well. <laughs> yeah, some things in life, you just it's not it's not worth trying to make sense of them, is it? <laughs> and you came from an unusual regiment, um, army regiment background to join the, the the SAS. Weren't you the first person in your regiment regiment for many years to pass the selection? Yeah, I was probably the first in about a generation. I think um, I think if you're from the Paras or Marines or uh, some of the other regiments, you've probably got a good idea of what selection's about and you'll know somebody that's been in or has just recently come back. We ha- we probably hadn't had anybody in the SES for close to 20 years. And your and regiment so, was the... Well, it was the Royal Scots uh, Royal Regiment, first of foot, and they're the senior infantry regiment in the British Army. They're now called one Scots after they all got sort of amalgamated and the Royal Scots and the Kings on Scottish borders got amalgamated into one Scots. So I, um, I I was going from the Royal Scots. So I was probably, I'm probably the last Royal Scot to have got in the SES because they, they amalgamated not long after that to become one Scots. And so I didn't really know anything about selection. I knew there was a hills phase and that you went to the jungle and that, that was about it. And so my training was quite restricted. I think I got a week off to train 
the week before selection, which wasn't ideal. But, you know, it was, um, I just sort of made, I made the best of it. And I was lucky, you know, I kept injury free and stuff. And sometimes you need a bit of luck to get through these things. And, and yeah, I was lucky I got, I got through. Did you find, was there map reading on selection? Yeah, so you do a gradual map reading. So you do, when you do the aptitude phase, the first four weeks, it's very progressive. So you'll go in groups, you'll get, everybody will get a chance at map reading and you'll gradually increase it until at the end, you're on your own, you're doing your own navigation, you're covering roughly four kilometres an hour over the hills and um, culminating in probably endurance, which is about 70 kilometres, 60 kilometres. Wow. in 20 hours and so you, your navigation's got to be good but I think it's got to be better in the jungle you've got to have micro navigation you're pacing and you know you're trusting in the compass and stuff and so yeah your, your navigation's a big part of it yeah and, and did you find selection hard or is that a stupid question yeah I think there's, there's nobody that's come through selection that would tell you it was easy um, I know there was people in my selection that found parts of it easier than I did. And I certainly, people always say that they've got various parts of selection that they found the hardest. And a lot of people say it's interrogation or it's the jungle. And for me, I think the jungle's the hardest part of selection, generally. For me, the hardest part was the first week. And then gradually it got easier, um, bizarrely. But I... Uh, you know, I was a really fit soldier. I was a good role Scott. And then suddenly I was very average and I was in, I was in the middle of this pool of like 200 people. And I always felt I was in the middle. I was in the middle when I went on selection and I was in the middle all the way through it. I never felt I was at the front. I never, I wasn't necessarily at the back, but I was just trying to survive mm. day to day. And it just so happened at the end, you know, there's like 12, but I still felt I was in the middle, you know, somewhere just trying to get by. But yeah, it's a hard course. It, I think it's confusing for, for those of us that haven't been there. When does selection stop and training start? Or have I even got that wrong? Yeah, so selection lasts six months and it's broken into phases. So your first four weeks is aptitude up the hills. Next six weeks, you'd be in the jungle doing your jungle training. There's an interrogation phase. You're, you're on the run. There's a parachuting phase. Um, there's a CT phase, a sort of kind of terrorist, just sort of typical embassy type phase. Um, so, yeah, all in all, it lasts sort of six months. And at the end of it, you're allocated a squadron and a troop. And then from there on, you're almost on a sort of permanent training cycle, really. Your training never really stops. Um, I just think you, you just sort of cycle and in that cycle, you cover all the sort of different parts of doing the job over that two years. But you're you're sort of you're always training. You're constantly learning new skills. You're in new courses, whether they're sort of medics courses or dems courses or linguist courses. You're always learning and training, really, and that never really stops. At, at which point then you call it getting badged, don't you? Is that the term? Yeah, that would be at the end of the six months. And and so you would ask what squadron and troop you would want to be in. You might have friends in a trooper squadron. Of course, I didn't know anybody, so I, 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 it didn't matter what I put. Um, but I went to D squadron, um, and I was in mountain troop. And so you might, you know, if you went to mountain troop, you would do mountain-type courses. You might be skiing or climbing or 
you know, alpine-based courses and stuff like that. And then depending on your troop skill, you would sort of develop them. But after six months, whoever's left at the end, so it's 12 year or whatever, you're then badged. So it's quite very, it's very unceremonial. You're just sort of tossed up a badge and, you know, you're, you're burying your blue belt and told to report to D squadron or whatever. And, and that's it, really. God. Um, sometimes unceremonial is the best way, though, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. It was very unceremonial joining and it was very unceremonial leaving, um, which is both, it's better that way, but I think it can be quite um, underwhelming, you know, if you're, uh, if you're in that situation. What was, were you paratrained when you went or did you do that as part of your SAS selection? No, a lot, a lot of what, when I went on selection, a lot of it was stuff I did for the first time. So jumping at a plane, going to the jungle, that was all stuff, you know, using some of the weapon systems, which made it fun, you know, because I was, it was fun for me. But, and a lot of selection is fun. People forget that. It's hard, but it's fun. Selections, it's fun being on selection. But um, yeah, it was the first time I'd, I'd been in the jungle and I was on it with jungle warfare instructors. First time I jumped at a plane and I was on it with paras and stuff. So you know, I always felt that, you know, you're always, you're in amongst people that have far more experience in a whole number of ways than you. And you're just trying to, you know, sponge, you know, stuff off them and, and just trying to be a, a decent team player all the way through mm-hmm. it. Is there a lot of focus on team in, in the SAS? I've heard different sort of notions about that. Yeah, and I think the jungle's probably one of the areas where it, they pick up on that the most because you're sort of micro-scrutinised and you're a small enough group of people that the DS can really start to individually scrutinise you and get under your skin and see what you're like, particularly in times of pressure, which is what they'll want to look at. You know, when the times are, when everybody's tired, when everybody's hungry, when everybody's cold and wet, who, who just keeps going and keeps the team going and gets the morale and, you know, keeps on board? And who are the ones that go quiet, go a bit sort of, you know, in the corner or the ones that become grumpy and snappy or aggressive? Because those, you know, th- those won't be good team players. And those sometimes are the ones that end up getting stand-up fails at the end of the jungle because they, they upset a team dynamic rather than bring, bring the team together. Which jungle did you go to, Colin? Well, I went to Belize on selection. Oh, no, I went to Brunei on selection, but I went to Belize uh, a bit later on with um, with the regiment. But, yeah, Brunei was where I did selection. Mm-hmm. And um, can you tell us about the, is it, they call it the hey-ho and halo course, the, the skydiving bit? Yeah, and traditionally, Halo and Hey Ho would only be reserved for the guys that went to Air Troop. Those would be the ones that did it. Unless you'd done it before, you'd come in from Pathfinders or something. But traditionally, it would only be Air Troop that did Halo and Hey Ho. We were a bit of a... We, our squadron was a bit different. We had one particular task where it required everybody to be Halo and Hey Ho trained. So I was fortunate enough to go and do the Halo and Hey Ho course. And then later on, I went um, and did my own uh, skydiving out of Paris Valley in um, California, which is great fun. But yeah, normally I wouldn't get to do Halo and Halo, but I was really glad I did because it's, again, it's another really fun part of um, doing that stuff, you know, jumping out at sort of 30,000 feet in oxygen and 
been up in the air for sort of 25, 30 minutes um, and, and just sort of navigating your way through the skies. Is, is, a, it, is it that long? Yeah, you can minutes. Yeah, you can stay in the air for a long time. You catch thermals. And a lot of the time they'll use it as a skill to go across borders and stuff, you know, because you're you're up in the air for such a long time. But, um, of course, that's the opposite to to um, Halo, where, you know, you're you're hopping and uh, you're going to pop when you when you get low. But um, we, we managed to do both of them. And I, I, I was really glad I did because it was something I wouldn't normally have got a chance to experience, you know. I mean, I'm quite fascinated there because I've done the skydiving course and there's a lot of things to be thinking about there. But overall, it's just absolutely brilliant fun. Just great. Especially when I said to the instructor or my previous instructor, can I just do a somersault out the plane? And he went, Chris, you're trained now. You do what the fuck you like. (laughs) And that was it then. So I was just tumbling out the plane every single time. Um, we actually had one guy would do the, the hey-ho, so the high altitude, high opening, and he'd have a bottle of tequila on his webbing sort of belt here on his strap with a straw, and he used to jump out from, and we would sometimes go up to about 15,000 feet, which technically should have had oxygen um, or air, air, oxygen, one of the two, and he would jump out pop his chute and just then literally float all the way down to the ground drinking his tequila, <laughs> which is a big no-no in skydiving circles, but this is just what this, this guy did. All the other guys were stoned, so it wasn't, it wasn't you know, too much out of the pattern. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I th- you see the difference between sort of British parachute and, and American skydiving and the sort of polar opposites, and so... You know, we'd wait for the weather. We'd be lucky to get jumping on a day when we're at sort of nether even or wherever we're doing the, the, the parachuting. And then you go to Paris Valley, you do your sort of initial whatever it was, 12 jumps, and then that was you. You were free to, like, pack your own chute, get yourself on the plane and just chuck yourself out whenever. And it was just such a a freedom and a responsibility that comes with it. But it was one that you weren't used to, particularly being a soldier when you're told of everything that you need to do. And, you know, yeah, it was mad. Yeah, I did. I, I I did both my private pilot's license and skydiving license in Florida, yeah. and the benefit of that was the weather windows were just they almost guaranteed it was did you know sunny weather all through the day, and then they'd always have the the storm in the evening or the time of year I went there they did. Yeah. Whereas it, had I done those courses in the UK, I mean, and I got both of them done in five weeks. Whereas if I'd done it in the UK, we'd probably be talking one or two, maybe one or two years because of, yeah. of the weather and also the um, strictness of the criteria in 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 Britain. Colin, you've gone a bit dark there, mate. I don't know if that's... Uh, that's just Scotland, but let me turn the... <laughs> let me... So, in fact, I'll turn that one off behind me because that would be annoying, Mark. Is that any better? Um, it might be okay. I won't worry too much. Try it. Is that, is that any better? Yeah. yeah. I can tell all my mates that I've been ordering a SAS guy around today. <laughs> Great, right? My missus does all the time, so uh, get, get it while it's hot. <laughs> 
So what I wanted to ask then is, I've done the bet, you know, I've jumped out in just just the clothes that I'm wearing. What's it like with all that equipment and breathing apparatus and weapons and, and survival gear? Plus, you're in the air for half an hour. It, to, to me, that just reeks that something is going to go badly wrong. Yeah, I think there's a lot to think about. I think when you, especially when you're up around, as soon as the plane goes above 12,000, you have to get onto your oxygen. And so everybody's oxygened up and they'll go around checking to make sure no one's oxygen's cut off because if it is, you'll you'll go unconscious and there's a guy that goes around just checking, make sure everyone's okay and there's no leaks. And then once you go out around 30,000, it's really cold. And so you've got your puffer jacket, you've got all your layers, you've got your gloves and, you know, you've got something on under your your, your helmet and everything because it's really cold up there at 30,000 feet. And then I think once you get down to, I think it's around 12,000, you come off the oxygen, but you're also stripping off layers and unzipping your, because you're hot now as you come down. But sometimes... I mean, you can get down quite quick, but sometimes if you catch thermals when you're you're up there, it can stay up for quite a quite a bit. And of course, you've got your little tray in front of you that's got your sort of GPS, your map, and your compass, and so you're navigating where you're going. And then as you come out the clouds, because normally the clouds will sit at whatever level, and as you go through the clouds, and I always wondered what clouds felt like, you know, and they're sort of. I always thought but they're quite sort of cold, like cold, slightly moist as, as you as you touch them, as you come through the clouds. And then as you come through the clouds, you see everybody else and you're all sort of gathering in a line coming down and towards the, the target. So no, it was great fun. Absolutely great fun. I love the, I love the skydiving. What happened if you got split up from your, from your team? Yeah, sometimes that could happen. And, um, Maybe your instruments are off or whatever, and I guess you, once you landed, you'd have to get on the radio and say, "Look, this is where I am. I'm, I'm maybe off target or whatever." It very rarely happened. It's bizarrely how accurate it ends up, and that'll be a lot to do with people doing the maths in terms of dropping people out. You know, going at a speed so that most people are stacked up that they're not going to be too far away. But there has been times. I recall one time when we were due to get dropped off. And we were we were dropped off out at sea, but we would drift over the sea and land on land. And the winds turned and did a 180, and we all landed in the sea. And so we all had to get picked up by ribs. So we're literally all floating around in the sea in different areas waiting to get picked up. So, yeah, it, things can happen in anything that deals with nature. You know, you're open to the environments. Do you have a, a life jacket if you're near the water? Yeah, you've got all that stuff. So anytime they're going to fly over water, you have to have a, a you know, a life jacket and stuff on. And um, a lot of the exercises we did, we would get dropped in the water anyway and have to make our way to, a, you know, it might be a rib or something and then inflate that and then, you know, head inland and then climb up a rope and then go on a sort of target. So it was kind of planes, trains and automobile stuff, but it was all, it was all training and stuff. But yeah, sort of all sorts can happen, you know. I'm just going to ask you a question. Sorry if it sounds a bit um, cliche, but it's just I'm aware of my American audience who will want to know um, what is the difference. You know, what is the difference between the Navy SEALs and say the SAS and, and the SAS? Um, well, there's a number. There's a number of differences. One would be 
So as an, I'll, I'll describe what we are, and then I'll describe what I think um, Navy SEALs are to, 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 to make that distinction. But certainly for, for the SES, we, we traditionally recruit from RAF, Army, Navy, Territorials, and they'll all come in. And then they're split into troops, and that's it. And we have our own boat troops. So boat troops, one quarter of our uh, squadrons that do that. And they'll do traditional um, Navy SEAL-type um, operations generally. What happens normally for the SBS, the Special Boat Service, is that they are primarily recruited from Marines, and that Marines will then join the SBS and the SBS will then do their boat course, whichever boat troop guys go and do with them. Now, that SBS boat course and sort of parts of the Marine course will be similar to what the Navy SEALs go through when they do their training. And the Navy SEALs, in my understanding, is that SEAL Team 6 are the sort of main counter-terrorist unit within the Navy SEALs. They'll go through quite a rigorous um, sort of marine-based uh, selection process, which will have different modules attached to it. But then Navy SEALs, and this is where some people get um, mixed up, Navy SEALs are probably, particularly SEAL Team 6, are predominantly the main sort of door kickers, counterterrorism unit within the US. People think it's um, Delta Force. Delta Force are completely separate, and Delta Force were modelled on um, the SES. So there was a major, I'm trying to remember his name, um, he came across and he saw selection, he saw how the SES were sort of um, structured and what they were meant for, and he went back and he designed almost a sort of replica in terms of a six-month selection process, what they were looking for. And that made Delta Force, who are traditionally from all sorts, Green Berets, Rangers, and all that sort of stuff. And they, they have a counterterrorism element to them as well, um, but they operate slightly differently in how they um, go about doing their business. And the only reason I say that is because I was fortunate enough to do an exchange with both of them. So when we went um, out to the Middle East, I ended up in a team with SEAL Team 6 and one of the Delta Force um, teams as well. So, yeah, they're slightly different in how they are. People get mixed up between the SAS and the SBS. Um, the, the SBS are probably closer to SEAL Team 6. Um, the SAS are a sort of hybrid of SEAL Team 6 and um delta force um you know just like their rangers are like our paras but to put it in a perspective the u.s marines have more soldiers than our army more ships than our navy and more aircraft than our RAF, and that's just their marines so they're a big unit this the the u.s so when the u.s talk about special forces you know they've uh, they've got over a hundred thousand special forces you know the, we, we have maybe 500, you know. And of course, another ish, another thing to remember is the SAS of our army and the, S, the SBS and the Navy SEALs are a Navy. Just, a, just thought I'd clear that up for people who didn't know. Yeah, and, 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 and with the Special Air Service, although 
you know, people might think that's RAF or it might be Navy, but we also have, there's quite a lot of Marines um, in the SES. So we have a lot of ex Navy, just like we have a, a lot of um, RAF, there might be guys from RAF Reg and stuff in there. Um, so, so, so the SES are a sort of hybrid of all the units within the, the British military, really, which is one of our strengths. You know, we wouldn't want to have all paras, all marines, you know, all navy. We, 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 would, we, we like the fact that we're, we've got people from all different backgrounds and, and stuff. What was the jungle? Um, how, how did you find the jungle? You said it, the navigation is hard. What about the, the living conditions? Yeah, I think I think people struggle with the jungle because it's a very it's 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 a very infantry based. You've got to be good at your sort of basic infantry level soldiering. So your navigation, your tactics, your camouflage, your administration, keeping your weapon and yourself clean, that is relentless. And you're under microscopic scrutiny. There's nowhere to hide in the jungle. I'll give you an example. We would um we would go out on patrol all day. One of you would be the patrol leader for that day. You would be in charge of the navigation when you took stops, when you did your, your six skids and all that. And at night, so you have a routine at night where as it's getting last light, you're all sort of on your bergens with your weapons, you know, ready to go. And then when it becomes dark, you slowly sort of disassemble and you get into your wet kit um, and into your dry kit and then into your um, hammock. And then that that's all reversed in the morning where you get out, you get in your wet kit, you get your stuff out, you clean, get your cam cream on, do your weapon, and you're ready. Mm-hmm. Well, we we collapsed at night, we all went in our hammocks, we all got back out in the morning, we're all facing outwards, and we're literally, you know, our, our boots are almost touching in this sort of all-round defence type stuff. And our DS was stood right in the middle of us all, and he was just looking at everybody, you know, and not, nobody had heard him come in or whatever. And he'd just been silent, you know, like a ghost in the middle of us all. And of course, your mind starts playing with you. You know, every little tiny mistake you make, you, you know, you might have stood on a twig. You might have missed a bit of calm. You might, your weapon might be a bit dirty. You might be doing a firefight and you might think I didn't do that quick enough. These all play on your mind, you know, over the course of it. And for a lot of people, it's it's too much, you know, and they just, uh, because it's a volunteer course at any time during that six-week selection process, you can say, that's it, you know, I'm, I'm going home. Yeah, and um, did, did I read that you were in Sierra Leone in, in the conflict there? Yeah, so we went across for um, Operation Barris, which was the, the hostage rescue across across there. And um, I think at the time they'd taken about 12 Royal Irish Regiment guys hostage. And we got sent across there to um, rescue them. And um, they started a sort of bit of hostage negotiation. We managed to get a few of them out. And then we, we built the camp. To, to scale and um, rehearsed on it and then went and managed to successfully rescue all the hostages and capture the main ringleader. But we lost one guy on it, Brad Tinian was shot and killed during the, the assault, sadly. But it, that's seen as a lot of places, and particularly in the US, as a sort of template for typical sort of hostage rescue, particularly in a sort of jungle environment, mm-hmm. because Americans do a lot in South America and stuff. So that's, Barris is seen as one of their sort of templates that they use for you know, atypical hostage rescues in a jungle environment. 
So for our friends at home, this was what they call in the media the West Side Boys, right? Who were like a rebel group? Yeah, a sort of rebel guerrilla group that had taken over the the country. Um, Nasty piece of work, high in drugs and alcohol, hacking off arms and legs, taking lots of hostages. Um, And the the UN were brought in but weren't really doing much. Hence, the sort of 12 guys got taken hostage. And it was just a real, uh, it was a, a ticking time bomb, really. So my understanding, because I wrote, I, I included a little bit of this sort of scenario in one of my fictional books, is they were really called themselves the West Side Niggers, but they couldn't say that on the BBC. Um, they were fond of wearing women's, women's wigs. So you'd get this black guy with a blonde, <laughs> blonde bloody wig on. They had this kind of amulets, you know, voodoo sort of witch doctor kind of, stuff to give them superpowers high on drugs as you said didn't they used to mix the gunpowder with cocaine or something to make this real bizarre concoction and a lot of them had been recruited as boy soldiers i'm i'm guessing um yeah i mean typical for for that sort of area very sort of gang-like culture and yeah, take it, taking taking young boys and stuff, and um, sort of blackmailing them over the threat of their families and stuff like that to get them recruited in. Um, and that was probably one of the most difficult parts about it was there was a lot of young kids in there with weapons that probably didn't want to be there, you know. Yeah. What What role did you play in in that rescue then, Colin? I was one of the recce teams. So there was two recce teams sent in to see the two camps either side of the river. So we probably got sent in a couple of days before the main assault just to go in, recce the camps, um, find out where the hostages were, take out sentries and stuff before the main assault came in. So I, I was one of those uh, recce teams. Wow. And was it was it gratifying to put all that training finally into a – well, not finally, because I'm sure you were involved in quite a lot of, um, you know, a lot of conflict in your in your time – but was, is it good to put your training into practice and you're doing it for real? I think one of the one of the good things about it was the fact that it was very different to a lot of the combat that's went on over the last 20 years, very desert-orientated combat. To do a jungle operation is quite um, unique unless you're – you know, um, a lot, I know a lot of the American special forces who do a lot of their work in the jungle, but for the for the British guys, you know, we very rarely get a chance to get our hands dirty in the jungle. So, yeah, when we do our jungle is a big part of our selection process. And, you know, if you can soldier in the jungle, you can soldier generally anywhere. So to get a chance to do that, as well as all the sort of, traditional sort of uh, green army type stuff the green rolls and the um, desert type combat was was good it was great we rescued all the hostages the only thing about it was we we lost brad you know and that was the that was the only sort of blip in, in that sort of operation that we lost somebody otherwise it would have been almost um you know the the, the perfect the perfect op mm. and it's interesting because i a guy i served in northern ireland with um won't say his name but he went he had an interesting career actually first he joined the sbs and he left because they asked him to go outside one day and pick up litter and he said 
I didn't join the special forces to pick up litter. And he was that cross about it. He left that, that that's what he told me anyway. There might've been something more to it. Then he became a mountain leader. And then he went back and joined the SBS, SBS again. So when I met him, uh, after I'd been out of the forces about 15 years, he was still an operator. And I was chatting to him in the pub and he was saying that he was in Sierra Leone. And when when he was in my my troop in Ireland and and um you know we didn't have it easy over there. There were things going bang and shots whizzing past our ears on a number of occasions, and we lost a chap in the in the second week about the second week over there so it wasn't as though we had a quiet tour and when I asked him about Sierra Leone he's like oh my god Chris you know I thought Ireland was hot he said when you were fighting the west side boys he said it was just it he just said it was all all kicking on kicking off just your full-on sort of combat scenario yeah, and I think for a lot of people, me included, sort of Barris was probably one of four or five times where if you can sort of have highlights of times in your career where you've been in amongst it, shots going both ways, you know, two-way range, and, you know, you, you, you've been part of something that has a sort of little footnote in history, that, that, would, be, that would be one of them. Mm. Phil Campion was there, wasn't he? I, I'm sh- He's, yeah, Paul, Paul Campion was there, and he, he was the same trip as me, and he was part of the main assault. Um, I can't remember exactly what his job was, but um, yeah, he, he was on he was on Barris. Mm-hmm. Wow! And and can we talk about the Middle East? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah, and you were taken captive there. That was the famous scene that we saw on the news here was it not when they just showed two they i think they called the military on the on the news and was that yourself and your your oppo as we'd say in the marines so, so pe- people get mixed up with this basically it, it was the same area same circumstances but my situation was a year before that so it was exactly the same captured and um, taken to the police station all, all the rest of it and then rescued from the police station. The one that they t- well, the, the one that they tend to show is the there's a tank um, and a guy on fire. And they when they talk about one particular incident that happened almost a year the day after my incident, which had already taken place. And the problem that, that that's another thing that's got me in and bothered before because the press have said that. I've said that was me or whatever, or the, or the guy in the tank or the guy inside or whatever. And then, you know, you'll have people coming out going, that wasn't you. That was a year after that. That was a year after that happened. But, but no, we'd, we'd already got captured a year before that had happened. And actually that, uh, almost it doesn't make it any better because if anything, history should teach us that stuff like that should never repeat itself, you know. And it was one of the reasons I, left because I didn't feel like that part of it had been fixed if you like you know mm. and um, yeah there, and it, the proof's in the pudding it happened a year later so was that a similar situation to what happened the year before or actually that I think it was the same summer we went to Northern Ireland to Belfast it was that time when they 
they kidnapped the two signalers who mistakenly drove were undercover and they drove into an IRA funeral. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for the one that happened the year after mine, but bearing in mind it was two guys from the same unit doing the same job um, in a low-profile vehicle, pulled out at a checkpoint, taken to the police station, held there, um, you know, smacked about a bit and then rescued from the police station. I mean, in terms of that, they were identical. Um and, and and probably had the stuff that was going on when I was there, had that been taken care of and some of the sort of I's dotted and T's crossed, then that probably wouldn't have happened a year later. And it almost sort of indicated my reasons for coming out because I thought this isn't something. I've always had this sort of bit about me that if something's not fixed, I feel quite frustrated about it. Like, well, there's nothing to stop that, you know, happening again. Maybe a military thing or it might be from childhood or whatever, but... I've always had one of those things where if something's broken, I'll be the guy that goes completely out of his way to go and fix it for something so, you know, minuscule. Even if it's walk a mile back down the road to tell the guy gave me the wrong set of directions, you know, I'll, I'll be that guy. So, yeah, it was almost identical in terms of um, what happened, in terms of the, the, the players involved and where it took place and stuff. But that one, I think... Um, was a year after so one was 2004 and one was 2005 I think Um, Can you talk us through what happened? It basically lifted but there was a number of things that were could could have been better so things like our communications and QRF or quick reaction force wasn't in place Um, our vehicles kept breaking down didn't probably have the right weapon systems and armor for the vehicles and stuff and 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 so it was just a, a series of small things that can all add up to a big thing and we were just taken at a, a checkpoint and um taken at a police station and i think they had plans to to execute us but luckily we were we were rescued from the the police station before that that who took place you? who rescued you colin there was a there was a Green Army unit there, um, and there was there was a Green Army unit, and there was an RMP call sign, and they they just they, they, they came to the police station and said they weren't leaving without us, and they managed to to get us down in armour and and out of there. But it was a bit of a riot at the the police station. There was a lot of people and stuff, so. Yeah, it was, it was it was tense, but we were lucky. We were lucky we were, there was people there at the right time to to get us out. Because if there hadn't have been, I'm, I've no doubt they would have. Um, yeah, they would have done away with us. So they were were beating you up a bit. Is, is... yes, yeah, so, yeah, we were slapped a bit, a bit, and I think it wasn't probably dissimilar to anything you go through in training for the sort of interrogation phase. Nothing, weren't pulling teeth or breaking bones or anything. Just try to slap you around and. You know, you know they're obviously looking for some kind of information, or I'm not sure if they they knew initially who we were. They probably did by the end of it, but um, yeah. And um, it must have been a, a relief for you that they didn't feature you on the in the media, because that's a big that was always a big no no, wasn't it? About SAS men showing showing their identities. Yeah, and there was brief bits about it, and they had they had um, they had video and photographs of us, so I couldn't really operate in um, Badra after that because they had a lot of footage of us. So I was moved up to um, Baghdad, and again, that's when 
I sort of did the exchange with uh, Delta and Seal Team 6 and stuff. And um, yeah, I, I got out not long after that. How is it? Um, you, people often talk about the difference in attitudes of the British forces and the American forces. I know Ben Griffin talks a lot about where he, from what I've heard from his speeches, he's, he's worked alongside the SBS and uh, sorry, the SEALs in the Middle East. And he said they had a very much more gung ho approach. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd probably agree with that. I think um, there's a lot there's a lot more about sort of individual stuff. They're, they're less deep on the sort of planning actions on side of it. They're, they're, they're just pretty much, you know, the door opens and just sort of go with it. Um, so, yeah, they're a little bit like that. When we went into Saddam's palace, when we first went into the sort of bunker and that, I know there was like, you know, there was lots of silver and gold lying about and there was sort of Picassos on the wall and they were just sort of smashing them with the bayonets and rolling them up and putting them down their things. And I think the only thing I got was um, Saddam's business cards with his gold italic writing and some of his bonds that he'd signed. Those were things I thought were worth having. So I had them, but they were... Yeah, they were they were they were mad for it, you know. And but they could act really quickly. They were a lot quicker to mobilise than than us, I thought. So if they got a piece of intelligence in, they'd be out the door in minutes, you know. Whereas we had to verify it, confirm it, you know, have two or three different means of verifying that, then get it signed off for approval, and then go off. So we might have been slower to move. And, they had a lot, they had their own cordon force, you know, they had the Rangers doing their sort of perimeter security and stuff. We never had that. Things have changed. I think we've become a lot more like the American model. We have this FFSG with the paras and stuff, and we have the signals and the medics and everything sort of making it a bigger SF group, uh, which makes it, you know, quicker in a way to mobilize because you have that sort of security with you. We've also become similar to the Americans in terms of we've shrunk our regulars and tried to expand our reserves, although it hasn't really happened to great success in, in, in the UK. But um, I think they're always trying to emulate that American model of, of doing that. Is it um, well, how, how do you go undercover in a country where people look quite different to you? Yeah, it's very difficult. And I think you have to you either go all out and you go undercover or you just do the best you can. And for us, we did the best we can. So, you know, you might have fake tan hair, dye contact lenses, you might wear a dish dash, but that's about as much as you can do. You're never going to, you're not going to survive someone who actually gets up close to you, talks to you, or even, you know, drives by quite close to you. But it's enough to, you know, to get by. The problem is when you're risking that on a long-term basis, it's, it's a matter of time. And we, we were problematic in that we weren't quite like the Americans either. The Americans had big signs on their bases saying, you know, anybody taking photographs outside will be shot and they'd follow through with that. We 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 didn't have that sort of stuff. For for the British, we they, they said to us, the front gate is where our jurisdiction stops. So that chicane, you know, that that's the end of our jurisdiction so somebody can sit at the end of that while well, video camera and film us all day there's nothing we can do about it you know very 
typically British, you know, way of looking at things where rules are rules. And so that was problematic for us because we would be videoed every day as we came out in the cars and it was a matter of time before they knew what cars we used. Was it was it the moment when you realised you were being effectively taken hostage? Was that was that a chilling moment? I, I'm trying to relate it to moments I've had in my past where I, I literally thought I was going to be executed and there's a certain feeling that, that comes over you. I'm just wondering if that relates. Yeah, I think there's, uh, bizarrely, there, there won't be moments that you would think. So people always say when you were in the room and you were like stripped and you're in the corner and they've got the muzzle against the back of your head, is that the point you were most scared? Because that seems naturally the point you'd be most scared. But it, it wasn't. The, 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 the time I was most scared was when they were all fighting between themselves and they were wrestling each other and there was like rounds going off. And that's the point I thought, nah, because it, like the organization had broken down and there's something that's very, you feel quite vulnerable about because as long as somebody's in charge and there's order and there's calm, even though there's a gun in the back of your head, it's not the worst it can be. The worst it can be is when civilization breaks down and people are fighting with each other because you're the lowest common denominator then, and at any point, somebody with a gripe could just, you know, and that, that's the point I felt the most vulnerable. So that's probably the point in the whole thing where I thought, this, is, uh, this isn't going to go the way I think it's going to go. Just to close off on, on the kind of military stuff, um, did you ever get into any, you know, firefights? Yeah, loads. I think a lot of them, uh, I talk about those sort of four or five times where, you know, they're sort of lasting memories for you. They're the sort of things that you join the military for and you hope you're going to be involved in. So there was a lot of those in the Middle East where some of them planned and some of them not planned where, you know, just the the fog would lift and you're in amongst it, you know, and you're in an hour long firefight and you're using all your weapon systems and you know, the lead wasps are flying by, but you, it, those, those are times that you take with you because you think, you know, that's, if I'd have joined up and never got a chance to do those things, it, you know, it, it would have been disappointing. But to be involved in those sort of things are, you know, they're up where were some of the best sort of firefights that special forces have been involved in. Yeah, I, 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 can um relate to what what you're saying it was I mean, i've met i mean i know guys that joined up didn't see any active service and it's it's just that thing isn't it it's just that it uh, all i'm trying to say is i'm i'm glad what little we did see that that we saw and i think i saw just enough to say okay yeah that that's cool <laughs> um I mean, yeah. it, the, the guy behind me got shot three times in Belfast and he, he lived, but, um, you know, to be in that scenario where you're patrolling along and suddenly you just hear bang, 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 bang. bang and in that split second, you realize, God, we're being shot at. And the, and you see the, the, I could see the grass was flicking up by, by my feet. Um, and like I say, Jock was, was just sparked. But barked out, thought thought he was dead. Um, but yeah, 
<laughs> so um moving forward what what does resilience mean to you colin because i've had this chat with a couple of people lately yeah i think it means a lot of things i think resilience is that bit about um enduring you know being able to endure and keep going and 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 not give up and put one foot in front of the other and take yourself to that place and for a lot of people for anybody that's run a marathon or climbed a, a big mountain or whatever, they'll have been to that place, you know, they'll have taken themselves to that place where it's sore, it's painful, and it's going to be a lot easier to stop, but you don't, you keep going. It also means, I think, that that sort of little bit about having purpose and a determination that you, you believe in something, you have a passion about something, and you're going to see it through and even if you're faced with, you know, closed doors, rejections, failures, hiccups, you'll keep going. It's not enough to persuade you to give up. And I think that's a little bit about resilience as well. And just thinking about the consequences. There's been lots of times when I've been scared out my wits. But the difference is I've went that way rather than that way because I've thought, what are the consequences? What are the consequences if I, if I do and if I don't, if I go left or if I go right? And sometimes if we just think about the consequences, it helps us make the right decisions a lot of the time. Yes. Yeah, I think I, I'm, when I'm doing my life coaching bit, I just tell people that the, the scariest thing about fear is the running away from it bit. You just turn around and face it and let it wash over you, then it it that's your first probably your first point of, of um tackling this, you know, stressful anxiety producing situation. It's the running away which conditions your body to be more scared the next time, you know, a similar yeah. scenario occurs. And I think with fear, fear is one of those things that if you've had that experience of fear the majority of the power that's come with the fear has come from in your head. So the first time you've jumped at an airplane, you've had a bit of fear. The next time there's been a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less, until you've got just enough fear to be healthy, to make you think about all the things you need to remember, but enough confidence and knowledge to know what's probably going to happen. And that's the same as if you're doing public speaking or if you're getting in a boxing ring for the first time or Whatever it is that you're going to do that you're scared about becomes inherently less scary the more you do it, which means the thing you're doing isn't inherently less scary the more you do it. It's what goes on in your head. And I think having that knowledge can help sometimes and and knowing that you're the gatekeeper of your emotion. You're the one that decides how scared, happy, angry you're going to be. You've got the key that decides when that happens, how much it happens. People can influence it. People can try and make you scared, but they're not. They're making you turn the key. Ultimately, it's always you that turns the key or the the dial that depends how much you're going to adopt any of these emotions. And I think knowing that sometimes can help. It's a useful tool sometimes. It's interesting as well, isn't it? Because without sort of going too deep into it, I didn't get the most support. Just like yourself, I had, not, you know, quite a traumatic childhood in, in places. It was too too traumatic for what any child should really experience. But I don't know how much of that me- meant gives me this resilience, you know. 
and I'm resilient in some areas and I'm not resilient in, you know, it's not like a skill that once you've got, you're home free. Um, Maybe I should give an example. So when it comes to running a thousand miles, pretty much nonstop, it's, that was ne- that was never an issue in in my mind. I, um, but when it comes to you know being a good father, that's where I have to really work on my skills skill set. You know, and uh, yeah. I think it's a useful topic. I think that whole thing about nature, nurture, resilience, how much are we born with? How much can we train it? And I think, well, I'll give you some examples. This this is my perspective on it. And it's not without, it's without any data, scientific, psychological experience. But I always think we're born with a resilience tank, like in a car. And we gradually, as we get older, fill it. And then we get to a certain age and, and that's it. And, but it's all sort of experience driven. So when we were a baby, if you think about it, we, how many, if we learn to walk, how many times do we fall over? We fall over all the time, but we, we learn to keep doing it. We keep going until we can walk. And we fall over hundreds of times. But it doesn't stop us. It doesn't make us think, oh, we failed or I won't try that again. We keep going until we master it. And then we're on to running and all the rest of it. As we, as we get older, we go through schools and stuff like that, and we acknowledge things like failure, shame, embarrassment, rejection. And it becomes a thing that's a very negative thing when you fail at something. We become less brave about, you know, failing or trying because we think once we fail once, uh-uh. I don't like that. I don't like that fail thing. I just like succeeding and and smashing it. And so it becomes very hard for us to have a resilience. And so gradually it takes a bit of a dip. And then, you know, it's up to us to build it up. And it's experiences that make us top that resilience up. But unfortunately, some of those things can be quite traumatic, but they can super top up our resilience tank, but only in those areas. And so sometimes you see that, Families that have been through trauma suddenly become more resilient at the end of it. It wasn't because they were born with a certain amount and then it suddenly appeared. It's because experience has given them that resilience. So I think there's a bit of both nature and nurture, but I think there's more in terms of we we build our experiences, build our resilience. And I think if you've been through stuff, yeah, sure, that helps. But as we get older, we slowly add to our resilience. Yeah, I could probably talk for hours just on this sub subject. Subject. I'm, I'm writing a book on it. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. There you go. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think I, I. My trouble is I just think too deeply on. It's not that I think too deep. You can never think too deeply. It's just I see through the like just the complexity of just a simple thing like resilience, for example. Young people today, many of them are really co- kind of pleasant. I, I don't really know how to, how, how to frame that in another way. They just really take a young man, a really nice. Like I went to Limston, you know, uh, where the Marines train. I went to uh, the Commando Training Centre, I should say, for our 30th 
uh, anniversary of when when our troop joined, joined training and so all us old guys turned up there and the the recruits were all just really nice they were a different type you know a different character to to us reprobates when we went through they'd come up to you and go oh hello who are you <laughs> in in the kind of in in the naffy queue which was just we didn't do that kind of stuff and guess what i'm getting to is resilience is funny because you you often hear in the press and the media and through so social media particularly that how how rubbish young people are these days and and how they're this and they're that and the other and i'm just trying to highlight there's no real kind of easy answer to a lot of this is there there's no kind of one rule for one and yeah and i think that's life i think life will throw up certain characters and generally i think um things like resilience probably i don't know if you're comparing it, i would say there's probably more resilience from a generation ago than there is now but things like coronavirus things like you know international conflicts recessions those add to resilience so and and you know we look at our you know a couple of generations before they went through the war and stuff and we always talk about how resilient they are mainly because of the experiences they've been through and so that anything thereafter that you come through is a breeze compared to what you you do so you build this resilience and I agree. I think people are nice. They have a lot of positives about them. They're a lot more techno savvy. Are they are they more sociable characters now than they were a generation ago? I'm not sure. And the mobile phone and social media probably have a part to play in that. But I think when it comes to resilience, there are things we we can train resilience. We can train that by making people have to, you know, get hold of their inner grip. And I think people like us, we talk about when we went through training and we might agree that you probably need more grit and resilience to get through training then than you do now because you simply don't you don't do those sort of things now. You know, you're not shouting and swear at you. You're not allowed to do the same sort of physical and mental exertions on people now that you were in the past. Therefore, it only stands to reason that there's less resilience needed and wherever there's less resilience needed, there's less resilience within us. So it's an interesting one, but things like this uh, COVID and recessions and international conflicts, they, they bring out resilience in people. And I think one of the things about this COVID is it's bring out the best and worst in people. And it doesn't take much for things to break down, but you're seeing some of the best in people just coming out, just wanting good for everybody in general, even at their own expense. Um, you know, our NHS is now the, the new front line, you know, the new special forces, and uh, we're lucky to have them. And um, and we see the worst in people as well, people just thinking for themselves or making it about themselves. So, yeah, it's things like that that break up society. And it's interesting to note that, you know, we're suffering an epidemic of, su- of military suicides at the moment. Clearly, there's a lot of damaged, predominantly young men, because they make up the majority of our armed forces, but of course, women as well, um, taking their own lives. And that almost flies counter to the thing that 
the military makes you resilient, right? Or our training teaches us to be resilient because um, there's some kind of disconnect or breakdown there, isn't there? Yeah, well, I think there's a number of things at play. I think it's quite complex. So the military generally will make you more resilient. That's, uh, that's probably a fair statement. But one of the things that the military does is it prepares you for things. So I'm going to go off to the desert. I'm going to go to the jungle. I'm going to jump at a plane. I prepare for it. There's, a, there's an element of training, and I've got people around me um, who are going through the same challenges and struggles and successes. When you go out into Sydney Street, you lose that network, and some, some more than others. And so, and there's no training for Civvy Street. You don't do a Civvy training course. You just are put in Civvy Street, sink or swim. And if you've lost that network and you're also going through difficult circumstances and you're also part of a, an age and gender um, group that already make up the bulk of, you, you know, suicide. So, so males, you know, 16 to 40 make up, you know, a large portion of, of those that, that commit suicide. If you add all those things into the mix and then just tweak with a couple of the dials, whether it's they're going through bad uh, social events, maybe family breakups, it might be stuff with the children, might be job issues, might be drug and alcohol, um, might be recession, COVID, isolation. Those are a lot of things, ingredients to throw in the mix. And for... Uh, and we, we're, we're, we're a group within the UK that has a big veteran uh, population, then it's it's going to take its toll. And certainly for us as a charity, and I just talk about our own Who Dares Cares, we, we're seeing a lot more traffic now with people that are worried about isolation jobs, family networks, um, you know, and it's, it, it's tough. And yeah, it flies in the face of, resilience but we've always been resilient because of an element of training and people around us when we lose that we just lose our stabilizers a wee bit sometimes and um you know and for a lot of people they won't see it as that way they won't see it as i've lost my resilience or whatever for, for a lot of them they'll see it as quite a selfless thing to do um you know they're sort of removing themselves as burdens in society um, obviously wrongly but in their eyes yeah, some of them yeah. that's the way they see it and so it's it's really problematic and it's difficult even just for us as a small charity and with local networks keeping hold of people like reaching out to them this makes it difficult and so even things like dropping off uh, food hampers or, or getting around people to fill in forms and stuff's difficult at the minute and so it leads to its own stuff never mind the big charities have a lot more things on the plate so who dares cares what who who who's your um who do you cater to well emergency services armed forces but generally anybody with mental health but we have a lot of um we have a lot of ex uh, armed forces on our on our books and we're we're generally regionalized so we're sort of central belt in scotland there's a few sort of individuals and locations doing stuff for us but generally we're sort of central belt in scotland so the sort of um veteran community there and um, but we have a few expiries prison service police on our books and stuff as well a lot of um nhs past and still serving that are um, on our books helping us out and stuff and we, we just try and do what we can so on one side there's a social side of it we'll do our walk talk and bruise every now and again we'll have a sort of boot camp or we'll go up the hills 
hoping that people will just create networks and reach out to us when they're when they're feeling bad. And then another side will do things like the food hampers or um, or sort of uh, our little sessions where we try and make people aware of some of the stuff, the issues they've got going on, and what they can do to help. Um, so just a mix of things, really. And ideally, we'd like to have this app and website up and running that provides people with a sort of immediate traffic-like system so they can tap into someone immediately if they're if they're feeling bad, whether it's 3, 4 o'clock in the morning or whatever. We'll put it well, on the YouTube video. I'll put links to, to your organisation, Colin, below so people can, people can contact you. Um, so just to finish up, you've done some quite a bit of public speaking work what we used to call public speaking they call it keynote speaking and inspirational speaking yeah and I kind of fell into it by mistake uh, probably about four or five years ago I was up in Aberdeen and it was an oil and gas conference and the topic was risk because at that time the price of oil was crashing and people were talking about risk and you know how do you measure you know, how much money we can spend on training equipment and all the rest of it. And we're supposed to have this skydiver. It's funny we've been talking about skydiving. We're supposed to have this skydiver who's going to skydive in, run up to the pulpit, and then give this big talk on risk. And he cancelled, like, two days before. So everyone's running about, like, headless chickens. And uh, what we're going to do, no speaker. And I said, look, if you're desperate, I can talk about risk, but it'll be from a military perspective, uh, you know, because I don't have a lot of oil and gas experience. And um, they were desperate and I ended up talking and um, I got a wee standing ovation at the end and somebody came up who did conferences and said, you should do speaking, that's something you should do. And I thought, that's not a proper job. Like, I, can I tell people I, I go around and speak for a living? That's just nonsense. And I ended up doing a few and then they just snowballed because you'll know like word of mouth and networking and you end up on one website and then another and you, you actually you believe it yourself that it, it does add value to individuals, organisations, um, sports teams, universities, schools. And so you think, all right, well, maybe there is, maybe that is something I can do. And that has slowly, sort of over the course of five years, taken over to probably be um, the main, my main sort of job now is, is doing talks. And I, I used to do one or two a month, and now I probably do two or three a week. Wow, and it's just went ballistic. But no, I'll take it. I'll take it while it's hot. And I think it's things like that. And last year, probably resilience is probably the thing I talked about most last year. That sort probably gave me the inspiration to write a book about it because I think the more I go to talks and people say, "No, that makes sense. That makes sense." I think, well, I'll write a book about it then because if people agree with it or they think it might help or they might help others, then. I'll, I'll write what I know about it, and I'm no expert. I'm not one of these people who comes on and says I'm a life expert or I'm, you know, whatever. I just there's things that have helped me, and if they help others, great. But um, one thing I do have that's unique is probably the experiences I've been through, just like what everybody's been through, just just like what you've been through. So where I can use that, I do if it if it helps, if it adds to the narrative, if it's exciting, if it's if it if it makes makes it sort of real in a way rather than just I went to university and I read a book on it then um, yeah I do it so among the sort of motion capture stuff and the surveillance training and the TV and book stuff public speaking is probably the the main the main thing I do at the minute good put, again for people watching I'll put a link below where people can get hold of you um I didn't ask you one thing what 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 was it like 
being on the television? Uh, I think television can be quite surreal. I think you always think you're someone, you sound like someone, you look like someone, and then you see yourself on TV and it's always quite different to what you envisaged, rightly or wrongly, normally in the normally in the negative from what yeah. most people have seen themselves on TV. But I think... Um, I think we, we, we spoke about this at the beginning. I think I pushed the record button. But w- with respect to the SAS Who Dares Wins programme, was was that... Um, how was that? Yeah, it, it was it was fun. And when it first started, I think it was quite it was quite real and gritty. It wasn't trying to set out to manipulate TV or, or bring people in with backstories or be about shouting and swearing. It was actually about what is selection and do people have what it takes and will people be encouraged from watching normal individuals push themselves beyond the boundaries and from that side of things I really liked it and I really liked the mental side of it because anybody can be physically fit go to a gym or whatever but the mental side I think is one thing that separates us at all levels it separates individuals athletes sports teams business leaders it's something that you know that resilience is a key part of it and sometimes that can be the making or breaking of you yeah, I think um, nobody shouts and swears at you on selection, and and why would they? Because um, you know nobody shouts and swears at you when you're behind enemy lines. So you've got to be trusted to be able to just do this stuff on your own without having it. And shouting and swearing doesn't really work because you know the first time you shout and swear at somebody, it has effect, and then gradually thereafter, it has very little effect. And so if you've tried that, at, you know people you know or your children, if you shout at your children, yeah, the first time that might have effect, but gradually it will have less and less until every time you show them, it doesn't really have any effect, you know, because they're used to it. But, so, yeah, that side of it was a bit disappointing. And then obviously they've got all these celebrities involved, like a lot of other shows, and and they've, they've tried to manufacture the television a little bit and what they think is good TV, whereas I think just getting ordinary people on is, is and let the show run. It makes it will make good TV. You don't have to try and manipulate it. But um, I enjoyed the show. I enjoyed how it set out, what it was trying to do, how it motivated people, either the people that were on it or people watching in the, through the TV sets, and if it inspired them to get out or get training or to you know try new things or improve their sort of mental resilience. And that that can only be a good thing. And we need a bit more of that. I think we. We live in a minute where we've got quite a shallow pool of sort of positive male and female role models, you know. And, um, you know, when we look at a lot of celebrities, you know, no wonder we're sort of feeding the younger generations with sort of maybe the qualities we're not the proudest of. And um, social media has got a lot to do with that. But I think, you know, I think when I grew up, I think it just seems to me that we have a lot more you know, positive male and females out there that were doing stuff for all the right reasons and um, maybe we're going a little bit the other way. But no, I enjoy TV. I've always I've always enjoyed TV. I've always um, always wanted to get involved in TV as long as the right sort of projects, the right sort of things, uh, you know, that I'd want to do. So, yeah, hopefully, um, you know, it'll continue and it gives you platforms to do other things. Was it easy to get on with those other guys? Yeah, I think, well, I think that's a particular um, sort of military and then special forces trait is that, you, you know, you have an ability to get on with other people, you know, you have a job to do. And so I think I'm quite an easy person to get on with, you know, I don't have a lot of, um, 
I, I don't get hung up about a lot and I'm not afraid to, you know, get stuck in when, you know, when, when times are tough and you, you have to roll the sleeves up. So, no, I think I'm generally an easy person to get on with and um, TV can create things that can create monsters and egos and stuff like that. And I think sometimes where teams have initially got involved in things, the longer things have went on, and the bigger either egos or personalities or, or characters have got, then the harder it is to keep that team dynamic. But certainly for me, no, I was uh, I was fine. I can put me in most teams. Do you think that the, the finalists on that programme, I always think that obviously it goes without saying they do really well to get to the end. I mean, it's not, it's not the easiest of um, tests in, in itself. But maybe I'm not looking at this right, but they, they always just have that veneer of being a civilian. I, I mean, I know they haven't been in the military, so I'm probably answering my own question. I just always say to, to, to my girlfriend, yeah, they've done amazing to get to the end and they've won the show or become runner-up or whatever, but they, they, they're not SAS material. <laughs> that, do you have no. a view on that? They might, they might, yes, they might be SBS material, but uh, no, <laughs> no I, I think, um, no, I, I think you, you only get a week with these people, you know, eight, nine days at most. And so it's very difficult to manufacture a six-month grueling, intensive soldier-like course within eight days with civilians. And, of course, health and safety has a big part to play on that. So there's things that you can't do, you know, that, you can do on selection um, and, and and you're not really testing their soldiering skills. And that's why I say the jungle would be very difficult because, you know, you've got to be all over that. It's all very well running up a hill with a pack on your back, but that's not really what makes you SES. So it's, it's very difficult. And no, there's no, there's no way that any of the people that come through that would get into the SES. And I'd be surprised if, any of them got through the aptitude phase, never mind anything else. But, you know, it's a TV show and the more it goes on, the more it's becoming like a TV show and, 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 and away from reality. Is there a lot of, um, well, again, I, I think I know the answer to my own question, but it there's a lot of manipulation to, in front of, behind the cameras going on, I, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, like you said, the people they pick for the show, some of them have got hidden kind of histories that are then just happen to be kind of exposed as they go through the the process. Is that yeah, and, and, and we were never involved in the, the recruitment of candidates for it. For obvious reasons, we would choose people that we thought resembled you know, characteristics in special forces. And they don't want that. They want a broad spectrum of, of society right across the board of men, women, you know, gender, race, religion, political persuasion, all sorts for obvious reasons. And um, yeah, so they're looking for different things and they're looking for, you know, good television. And when we run selection, we're not looking for things that make good television. We're looking for good soldiers you know and so those sort of running they fly in the face of each other sometimes and I and I think that it it's got more and more the other way than 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 how it started out but um 
It is what it is. Pe- people enjoy it for what it is. And if it still does a little bit of what it used to do in terms of motivating people to, you know, improve themselves next week than what they were this week, then it can it can only be a good thing. What? How do you do? You have any kind of um, thoughts on women are now allowed to join the Royal Marines, and I guess that will one day become women are allowed to join the SAS. Yeah, I don't, I don't really. I, I, I'm not sure. I feel strongly either way. I think um, women are as capable, if not more capable, in a whole range of areas as as men. Um, and certainly there'll be women that are probably capable of passing selection. I think it'll be a long time before we see a woman in the SES, just because we have a very shallow pool to choose from in terms of ones that have very high infantering skills. So a lot of women out there are very fit, able to run up hills with packs on their back. But do we have enough sort of infantry level soldiers to get through? Like the core of our special forces are paras and marines and people with good soldiering skills. How many women do we have out there that have that? Not many. So it just stands to reason that the chances, just statistically, are very are up against them to to get through. But you know, it's only a matter of time. And I think we've already got have already got women in the Marines at the minute. Is there anything you wanted to say before we say our goodbyes? Not at all. I would just say to everybody in there, hang hang in there. Like you're you're doing, whether you're getting stuff done in around the house, keeping networks with local people that are around you. We're getting involved with some of the campaigns that are on. You've probably seen I did that. Um, applaud for NHS. Our women's doing the doing the rounds at the minute, or you might be doing some of your local charity stuff in the areas you are. So keep involved, and you know where I am if you need me. Colin, thank you ever so much. Stay on the line. I'm just going to basically say goodbye, which means hitting the record button off. To our friends at home, thank you ever so much for watching the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. If you could please like and subscribe, I'd really appreciate it. And of course, a massive thank you to Colin for joining us. See you all soon. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username Chris Thrall. Instagram Chris.thrall. Thank you.